We began last Lord's evening a new series in the uh, Old Testament historical book of Second Chronicles. So we come tonight to Second Chronicles chapter 2, and we'll study the entire chapter. Second Chronicles 2, verses 1 to 18. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as you dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him. And for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and on the and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven even highest heaven cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving, to be with the skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, For I know that your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance. For the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. I will give for your servants the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Then Hiram the king of Tyre answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. He is trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, blue, and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and to do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned to him with your craftsmen, the craftsmen of my Lord David, your father. Now, therefore, the wheat and barley, oil and wine of which my Lord has spoken, let him send to his servants, and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa so that you may take it up to Jerusalem. Then Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found 153,600. 77,000 of them he assigned to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and here we have a passage that reads not unlike business correspondence today, and yet this is your word. You have a message for us, 
Uh, so we thank you for it. Make us wise unto salvation in your Son. Help us to know how to prepare for worship through this account. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some people are famous for a single achievement. Consider Alexander Graham Bell, who performed groundbreaking science to aid the suffering of those with deafness. His mother and his wife were both unable to hear. But what he's remembered for primarily today, almost exclusively, is that he invented the telephone. The words Wright Brothers immediately summon visions of the first manned flight not that far above the sands of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Included on this list is Israel's King Solomon, whose great achievement was building the Lord's temple on Mount Zion. So closely was Solomon associated with the work that that golden building resting above the holy city of Jerusalem is known to history as Solomon's temple. Now, in building the temple, Solomon completes a work that actually was prepared by his father David. First Chronicles gives great details on that. But he also, in the perspective of the chronicler, plays the role of the second Bezalel. Now, who's Bezalel? Well, he's the artisan who was given wisdom so that he would make the wonderful objects associated with the original tabernacle in the Exodus. You read about that in Exodus 35, verse 30. And the mention of Bezalel, the son of Uri, in chapter 1 of this book, shows that he was on the chronicler's mind. Turns out that Bezalel was descended from the tribe of Judah. And again, he received special wisdom. It's actually the word that's used for making the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of burnt offerings, for instance. Now this comparison explains why Tyre's King Hiram praised God for raising up Solomon who will build a temple for the Lord. He is a second Bezalel. So central to the chronicler's account of Solomon's life that he built the temple, that six of the nine chapters devoted to Solomon's life are about the building of the temple. Now one reason for that focus was that the Chronicles was written to Jews or for Jews who were returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and to them was given the daunting task of rebuilding the temple, the original having been destroyed. Well, we too follow in the history that once saw Israel's King Solomon build a temple for the Lord. And the story of this informs us about worship. And how worship relates to God, how worship relates to his people, even how worship relates to the watching world. Well, Solomon's father, David, did much of the work of preparing for the temple project. Chronicles 22, 1 Chronicles 22, 28, and 29 tell how he gathered vast and costly materials. But now came the task of actually organizing the workers and, and gathering the remaining materials that were needed as the building would commence. Uh, 2 Chronicles 2, 2 to 10 tells us how Solomon did this. And it consists mainly of a letter he sent to his ally, Hiram the king of Tyre, asking for his assistance. Well, the chapter begins with a statement of the theme. It's almost a title for the chapter. Now Solomon proposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now, interestingly, in the parallel account of this, in 1 Kings chapter 5, this note about Solomon building a palace for him, himself, uh, it's not a good mention there. It, it's a precursor to future problems. It anticipates how his royal activities would compromise his devotion to the Lord. But Chronicles has a very different perspective on the same period of history. 
Here the union of the temple and the palace shows the union of the king to the worship of God. The king ruled from the palace and the priest ministered in the temple. And both of these institutions would find their culmination in the coming of Jesus. He came as both king and high priest. Both of these buildings then that are mentioned here, one for the throne of David, the other for the sacrifices of atoning blood, they both awaited their true occupant who would come in the birth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, turning to Solomon's preparations, verse 2 begins with the assignment of workers. Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. Now, those numbers show us the scale of the project, which would result in what even secular historians regard as one of the wonders of the ancient world. Now, Solomon needed not only a whole lot of manual labors, but he also needed a small number of very skilled workmen. And he needed at least one who had the very highest ability. And so for that person, he purposely writes to his neighbor, Hiram. And Hiram had previously entered into an alliance with Solomon's father. And so he writes to him, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me, verse 3. Solomon was about to build a house for the name of the Lord and the splendor of the temple required the special talents that were in Hiram's employ. Tyre had been an extremely wealthy city. It had been rebuilt and they had learned great achievements in architecture. So he writes, now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver and bronze and in purple, crimson and blue fabrics trained also in engraving. This must be a multi-talented, multi-faceted master artisan. And he, what he would do is he would oversee Solomon's skilled workers and he himself would perform the most delicate tasks. We see that in verse 7. And Hiram had just such a skilled and discerning man. Verses 13 and 14, Huram Abi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. Uh, that meant this man was half Israelite. His mother was a Danite, a, a, a woman from the northern kingdom. And the fact that this great artisan then was half Israelite, that made him all the better. He would be able to deal more effectively. He could pass on his knowledge to Solomon's people. Now David, I mentioned, had accumulated a great amount of materials for the temple, but it's clear that Solomon envisioned something that required even more than what David had gathered, and so he requests these from Hiram. Included were the choice cedars of Lebanon, along with cypress and algum timber. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of wood the cedars and the cedars of Lebanon and the algum were. They have not survived the centuries uh, since the time of Solomon. But we do know that they were the best possible materials, since as Solomon ex explains in verse 9, the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. Now for his part, Solomon promised men to transport the wood after it was cut in Lebanon. That's just north of Israel. Tyre is not far from the northern boundaries of Israel. Moreover, he was willing to provision the entire project. I will give for your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, 20,000 baths of oil, verse 10. Now again, the vast amount of food, wine, and oil suggests the scale of this project. And Hiram answered, he agreed to provide all that Solomon requested, uh, although you might notice that he did so on the provision that Solomon would pay up front. 
Verse 15, now therefore send thee wheat and the barley and the oil and wine of which my Lord has spoken. And so Hiram's men would cut the wood. They would send it to the Israelite port of Joppa and there Solomon's men would take it and cart it uphill to Jerusalem. Now the account of Solomon's preparation concludes on an interesting note that he conscripted aliens who were living in Israel and these are the men who would do the hardest labor. Verse 17 Then Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David his father had taken, and he found 153,600. Now, almost half of those would cart the materials, another 80,000 would quarry stone in the hill country. Now, we have to read this from the perspective of the chronicler, writing many centuries later, as his generation again faced the daunting task of going back to Jerusalem and building a new temple. You see, from that perspective, Solomon is an ideal king. He is dedicating the entire resources of the nation for the glory of God. That is what the chronicler's generation needed to do. Mark Boda notes that, Solomon's inclusion of the Tyrians and even the resident aliens shows that Israel and its worship was, were not irrelevant to the surrounding world. As the palace of the God who created the cosmos, all nations had a vested interest in the construction of this temple. And Martin Selman adds, the temple then did not become a house of prayer for all nations by accident. The nations even played a part in its construction. And so we have an anticipation of the great temple project that will be completed in the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, the correspondence between Solomon and Hiram provides some interesting historical details from a time long by. And interestingly, the first century A.D. Jewish historian Josephus makes the comment that there were records available in his day of these very letters, these very correspondences. Records of them could be read in his own time. But here's the question in our time. What do these actions and words have to say to us? Well, let me say that they particularly inform us as we prepare to worship God today. And the first lesson we glean from Solomon's letter is the main purpose of worship. It's the first thing we see here. What is the purpose of worship? What is the reason he built such a structure at at such great expense with such immense labor? What was the purpose of this? A meeting place where... Israelites could discuss religious views? Was it a sort of a theology college? Is that what this was about? Was Solomon motivated primarily for the social needs of the people, for the community uh, uh, requirements? Well, he gives us the answer. He says in verse 4, Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. You see, the purpose of this temple And also the purpose of our worship today is that the true and living God would receive the glory that he deserves, would receive the glory that he deserves. Now, when Solomon spoke of the name of the Lord, he was referring to the totality of his beings, of his being and attributes as they are revealed by the Lord's presence. The Lord would be present there and all that he is would be revealed. Solomon built his temple then so that the fame of the Lord would be displayed in the ministry that went on in the temple and he would receive the glory that is due to him. 
Now, the temple, therefore, was constructed for prayers and for praises, and that they would be directed to God and they would glorify his greatness because it was a house for the name of the Lord. That's why only the best possible materials and workmanship were fitting. Solomon literally scours the earth to find the people best able to perform this. You see, he communicates in that way a message to our generation. Just think about church buildings today, almost always constructed now with human convenience, with the horizontal interaction, the social needs of the congregation. That's almost always what the architecture of the building is determined by. But Leslie Allen notes instead that the church buildings are a silent witness to the faith of the worshipers. And outsiders receive from them an impression of the God who is worshipped there. The role of the building committee and even the fabric committee, he says, is to communicate theology. The primary purpose is that God would be glorified the way that he is, the person that he is, the being that he is, that it would be revealed. Well, if Solomon prepares the materials and the workers for building God's temple primarily with his glory in mind, well, then Christians should prepare for the weekly worship services in the same spirit. We are in a lamentable time where for the health concerns of our neighbors, we're having to worship in a virtual way. We should pray. Of course, our prayers are for the well-being of our fellow neighbors. We think of cities and people in great distress, even as we are gathering electronically tonight. But we should also pray for the soon resumption of the public gatherings of, of the church, that it would be wise and safe, and that we would have a great zeal to return together as soon as we could rightly do so. And then if someone would ask us on the way to church, here's a question they might ask, what are you hoping to get out of the worship service? That's the question even tonight where we're not physically present. Someone might ask you, what's it about? What are you hoping to get from the worship service? Well, the proper Christian answer is, I am seeking that God would be glorified. That's what I'm hoping will come out of this, that God will receive his glory. That is the primary purpose of our worship. And that should be seen in the way that we pray. When we pray, there are times when we just need to We cry out in prayer. The Bible endorses that. But our regular prayers ought to begin with adoration, with praise to God. We should be rehearsing the glories of who he is and the things that he's done and how his redemptive acts have revealed his his holiness, his mercy, his power, his wisdom, his grace. We should be adoring him. It should be the first aim of our prayers that we would glorify him and that we would thank him for his great redeeming works. Worship songs, likewise, should not primarily explore our own feelings and experiences. That is so typical of a great deal of contemporary praise music today. But rather, what our music should do is it should celebrate the glory of God and his grace. The Puritan Thomas Watson observed, Though nothing can add to God's essential glory, yet praise exalts him in the eyes of others. When we praise God, we spread his fame and renown. We display the trophies of his excellency. Now, the temple was constructed not as a place of private devotion, but rather for the public corporate worship of God. 
Now, to be sure, it's actually very important that Christians should worship God in our homes and, yes, in our daily lives, day to day. It's a, it's a common expression, expression today that all life should be worship. There's a sense in which that's true. Where our lives are living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. And yet it remains the case that our most important worship takes place on the Lord's Day in the company of fellow believers. Like Solomon in preparing to build the temple, we should prepare our hearts and minds for worship with the offering of ourselves and our praise for the glory of his name. Solomon writes to Hiram in verse 5, The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. And animated by the same spirit, Christians should prepare for worship by seeking to offer praise that is fitting for the God into whose presence we come. Matthew Henry commented that they are the wisest men who who lay out themselves the most for the honor of the name of the Lord. Now Solomon further explained his purpose, speaking of the activities that would take place in the temple by which the Lord would be glorified. Verse 4, he would dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him or, and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever in Israel. Verse 4. Now, these words describe the ministry function of the priests who would serve in the temple. It was not the building itself, although, as we will see going further, there's a theological message even in the measurements and dimensions of the temple, but it's primarily not the building, but what is designed to happen in the building. Namely, those ministry, those worship activities that God has ordained. Now, what are they? Well, he mentions the altar of incense. It stood right outside the veil of the Holy of Holies in what was called the Holy Place, the main room of the temple where the priests would minister. And this incense was burned in the presence of the Lord, signifying the God-honoring prayers of his people. The showbread was set out, daily baked bread, set out on tables that, which, which honored God's faithful provision to Israel. We think of how he caused manna to fall from the heaven during the Exodus. And then outside in the courtyard, there were burnt offerings that were performed morning and evening, both for the atonement of sin and for the consecration of the nation. And the weekly Sabbaths had their own sacrifices. And then there were the consecrated feasts in which the nation worshipped the Lord. Those feasts were centered on the temple courts. Um, And you think of John's gospel. Uh, He organizes so much of his gospel around the feasts during Jesus' ministry. And those feasts constantly have him in the colonnade of Solomon, in the temple courts. The, the, The temple was where the feasts found their center. Now, perhaps the main point for us of the Old Testament worship services, the practices that Solomon intended, and here's really this is the key thing, is that the way that he was worshiped, the activities that were going to glorify God in the temple were those that had been ordained and specified by the Lord in his word. Solomon planned to glorify God by offering him the worship that he had stipulated. There's a tendency today to believe that as long as we're sincere, as long as we think it's worshipful, then it must be received in a worshiping way to God that he's pleased with it. 
Well, nothing better reveals our lack of understanding as the Bible teaches us about ourselves. In fact, we do not worship God suitably when we act according to our imaginations with our own ideas of what will please him. Rather, it is when we worship God according to his word that he is glorified. And so we fill our worship services with the elements that God has commanded in his word. And that way we glorify him as the sovereign Lord. John Calvin said this, it tends greatly to establish his authority that we do not follow our own pleasure, but depend entirely on his sovereignty. And secondly, such is our folly that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. And so the very worship innovations by which we depart from the word of God and think that we have improved worship actually have the opposite effect. God is glorified according to his word. He is the sovereign God. We honor his sovereignty by obeying the scriptures. Now, many Christians ignore the worship theology of the Old Testament on the mistaken grounds that Christ has fundamentally done away with it that was for the past it's it's by and gone he he swept it away it it has no relationship uh, what they were doing in the temple to what we should do in the church today in reality of course christianity is the old testament faith and the old testament worship fulfilled in the one to which it pointed and so yes the forms have changed but the substance the theology of worship remains the same now one inkling of this fundamental continuity from one era to the other is seen in the detail noted by king hiram regarding this skilled artisan he was going to provide to solomon his name was huran abi and we're told we mentioned it earlier that he is the son of a woman of the daughters of dan one of the northern tribes of israel his father was a tyrian his mother was a danite Now, this detail is significant when we pick up then the parallels in this episode to the earlier construction during the Exodus under Moses of the tabernacle. You had the tabernacle, that temporary structure in the wilderness. Now you have the permanent structure in the promised land, but the continuity between the redemptive eras is emphasized. Now, how is that the case? Well, I mentioned earlier that Solomon is a new Bezalel, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple builder, the man from the tribe of Judah. It is not incidental that Bezalel had an assistant. His name was Ohaliab. We read of him in Exodus chapter 31, verse 6. Guess which tribe he came from? He came from the tribe of Dan. And so as Ohaliab was the assistant of Bezalel, now Huran Abi is the assistant of Solomon and the tribes line up. Now here's the point. The circumstances had changed. Yes, the forms were altered. God had moved forward in redemptive history. And so the, 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 the whole form of, of the nation's life and worship moves forward with it. And now Israel would worship in a temple of stone instead of a tabernacle of cloth. And yet the principles of the prior era were going to be carried over into the next. Leslie Allen writes, what the tabernacle meant in the Torah in the five books of Moses and to Israel afterwards, henceforth the temple would mean the old was a model for the new. So it is the relationship between the Old Testament worship and the New Testament. We see in model form that which is brought to maturity in the new covenant. Well, it's obvious that Solomon's aim of glorifying God through the temple required great expense and effort. 
And our worship today should be no different. Well, it is different. It's a new time. Uh, it is, Jesus said, we worship in spirit and truth. It does not depend on a building in the same way. The worship has been simplified in the new covenant era. There are gospel reasons for that. Now it's able to be a worldwide religion, for instance. But nonetheless, it is to be costly in terms of the way that we approach it. Very few churches today use the old language of speaking of the worship service. But that's actually biblical language, the, 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 the typical word, Numbers 3.3. 3. In fact, it's seen in Luke 1.8 in the New Testament. Is that the priest, the worship specialist, they served the Lord. It was a duty they were doing. It was a service they were offering. It was not something casually done on the spur of the moment uh, according to what seemed to be faddish and best. Well, now in Christ, we are a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. John writes in Revelation 1, verse 6, Now we are together a kingdom of priests, and we too should not approach, approach worship in a casual spirit, but we should expend effort in preparing for worship. Solomon candidly admitted his unworthiness to build the temple. Verse 6, who am I to build a house for him? And yet, clearly he expended great efforts. He sought to offer the Lord his very best, not his leftovers, but his very best. Not the leavings of his attention, but the, but the, the whole of it. He approached the temple thinking not about what God might offer to him that day but rather he could offer the whole of himself to the Lord. Well, godly Christians often prepare for church by laying out their clothing on the night before. I think it's not a bad thing to do. But if we really think about God and his greatness and his holiness and majesty, we'll prepare more than our clothing. We'll prepare our hearts. We'll prepare our minds to give him praise. The, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs recommended that we pray for worship. He gave several recommendations. First, in possessing the heart with a right apprehension of that God before whom we come to tender our duties. We should make an effort to remind ourselves what God is like. If you read a psalm the night before, that would do a good job of saying, I'm going to go into this God's presence the next day. Even the, the Gospels would do that. For sure, the Gospel of John would remind you of who God is before you worship Burroughs advises that we then confess our sins and ask God's pardon in Christ. And then prayer, prayerfully ask God to enable our hearts to disentangle from worldly concerns. Isn't that so much of the challenge? Lord, let me go into the sanctuary, not thinking about the sports games, not thinking about outside relationships, current events. We should pray, Lord, I'm entering into the sanctuary. We're beginning the worship service. Uh, let me have my heart disentangled from the world. And Burroughs concludes with a final preparation in the readiness of the faculties of the soul and the graces of the Spirit of God to act upon the entrance of a holy duty. Well, few Christians today think of worship as our service of duty to God, but Solomon thought that way. And if we prepared for worship like he prepared to build the temple, the likely result is that the name of the Lord would be more truly lifted up in our hearts and from our lips. Solomon shows us the purpose of worship and our attitude towards it. It is to glorify God. 
Now, we also see some byproducts. The, the purpose of worship, the aim, is doxology. It's that God would be glorified. But there are byproducts that are evident in this passage. And one of them we see in the letter that he wrote to King Hiram. Namely, the focus he has on the edification of the people of God. That they would be built up in faith. That they would be blessed. It's not the primary purpose of worship, but it is a byproduct. Now, we noted earlier that the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the feasts, they were primarily for the glory of God, but they were also given by God as a means of grace to build up the faith of his people. It taught them things. It brought them into his presence. It it brought their hearts open to him. They were also means of grace. See, God designed that the very elements that make up suitable worship also communicate his blessing to his people. Now today, when the physical temple has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ and Christ dwells in us and among us through the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, the worship has been simplified. It's not as ritualistic. It's, Jesus said we worship in spirit and truth. The, mean, the worship has matured and become more spiritual. And yet there are means of grace appointed for our worship that not only glorify God, but they also edify us. They build up our faith. Primarily, the New Testament speaks of the ministry of the Word of God, the prayers of God's people, and the sacraments. These are the worship activities, the elements of worship designed to feed God's people spiritually. And we see this all through the New Testament. In fact, from the very beginning of the New Testament church, Acts 2, verse 42, describes the gatherings of the earliest Christians. This is right after Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There are the three New Testament means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayers. And if our worship today is to nourish our souls, we will engage in the same activities, particularly just as the early Christians. Notice the word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, so ought we be today. The serious teaching of the word of God should occupy the worship gatherings of God's people. Likewise, Christians are spiritually enriched in prayer. I think we're becoming an old-fashioned church that we have a congregational prayer, pastoral prayer, and it might be eight, nine minutes. And we're living in a generation where many people say, I have a real hard time praying for 10 minutes. And and, and the answer is, just think about what what we're doing. Think about who we are. Think of the significance of what we're doing. The fact that we would pray together in a serious way about our world, about each other, but particularly for the glory of God and the work of his gospel. What would be remarkable would be if we did not pray in such a way when we were gathered together. Likewise, the sacraments take up the ritual life of the Old Testament. The sacraments simplify them. We have two only, and they gather them on the person and work of Christ in his atoning death. Now, some of these things should take place privately, not the sacraments, but Bible study and prayer should take place privately. But I think Daryl Hart and John Muther are right when they say this, that the means of grace are fundamentally corporate in character. We come to worship. When we come to worship, we're not engaging in an individual experience. Public worship is always in the company of the saints. Its activities are for the participation of the whole congregation. 
We should pray in private for sure. We should read the word of God daily. We need to do that. And yet the gathering of the church is corporate and public. Well, that's the first byproduct of God-centered worship. There's a second that's found in this passage, and it's evangelism. God-centered worship for the glory of God builds up the faith of believers and communicates the glory of God, stirs the faith of outsiders who watch. Now Solomon, we see this as Solomon gave Hiram of Tyre some very valuable information, not only about what he was doing, what was the purpose of the temple he was building, why he needed the things he needed, but particularly about the God he was worshiping through the temple. And the result was praise to the Lord from King Hiram that anticipates the work of Christ as he gathers praise to God from all the tribes, tongues, and nations of the world. In fact, the, it's interestingly, the mere fact that Solomon wanted to build a temple was not very unusual. Most so-called gods had temples in the ancient cities that worshipped them. It was a pretty standard thing. You had a capital city, you built a temple to your god. But Solomon wanted Hiram to know about this particular god. That the God of Israel is different from these false gods. And he says in verse 5, for our God is greater than all gods. Now, furthermore, Hiram probably noticed, Solomon seems to anticipate that he would notice, that something seems to be missing. They're building a temple for the Lord. They're getting timbers. They're getting stone they're going to quarry. But there's no mention of a statue to the God. Now, the ancient temples had statues, and the idea was that the God was in the temple, and that's what the statue showed. That was the God. The idol was where the God lived. That was where he was. And so Solomon explains the transcendence of this, the true God, that he is not contained in any earthly house. What a wonderful statement he makes in verse 6. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? You see, the God of Israel is a true God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's not contained in all the universe. He's totally transcendent above all things He is certainly not going to be contained in the house that Solomon would build. Well, equally remarkable as God's transcendence was, was also his eminence. The Lord's availability to his people when they came and worshipped him. Verse 6, the temple would be a place then to make offerings before him. didn't contain God. He's too great for that. But he would be there, not in a statue. He'd be there through the Holy Spirit. His people could meet him there and bring offerings, greatly in contrast to the pagan gods. Most pagans conceived of their gods as local and limited. That's why they had so many of them. But here we have Solomon's God, who's infinite, utterly transcendent, and yet he's completely accessible. He's imminently present to the faith of believers. It reminds me of the great statement the prophet Isaiah makes in Isaiah 57, 15. He puts this together. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of of, of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, here we find a summary of the Christian message to the world. that There is one God. He's the maker of heaven and earth, but he shows grace to meet with and bless those who humbly call upon his name. 
Moreover, unlike the pagan worshipers, these offerings to God were not a way of manipulating him. That's how it worked in paganism. You're, you're, you need to get something from him. He's got something you want. You want to get it from him. You give him something he wants. It's a nice deal. That, that's the way that the pagan worship worked. That's not what's going on here at all. This God is not manipulated. He's not controlled. The offerings, in fact, are a picture not of what we are giving to him, but of what he is giving to us, namely the blood of his own son. These sacrifices look forward to the atoning offering offering made for our sins by Jesus on the cross. And in both Solomon's bold claims and also in his humble demeanor in building a house for the Lord's name, you see Hiram's confronting something entirely different than he has seen anywhere else, a true and holy God, infinite but near to our hearts, who saves his people by grace grace alone well no wonder that jesus declared that he was himself the fulfillment of the temple project destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up we we say where's the line of continuity from the tabernacle to the temple is it to the church it's to christ that's where god tabernacles with us the word that john uses in his gospel And he made that place where the infinite God meets and receives and saves his people in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, therefore, the aim for which Solomon built the temple was fulfilled when Jesus died and rose again. Perhaps we might say it was fulfilled when Doubting Thomas finally believed and he knelt before the Lord Jesus and he said, My Lord and my God, it is through faith in the gospel that we meet with the infinite God and receive his blessing. Well, there's not enough evidence to say that Hiram was converted by Solomon's witness. We'd like to say that, but it could easily be pointed out that this kind of language is polite diplomatic language, although it seems to be more than that. Clearly, Hiram is impressed. He's been impacted by this. And so he responds in praise to the God whom Solomon has so marvelously described. Verse 12, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth. See, here's an important advance in saving faith when he realizes the unique transcendence of Israel's God. He's also impressed with Solomon, God's servant. Verses 11 and 12, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Well, clearly Hiram had thoughts to ponder both from the uncommon and humble faith expressed by Solomon. Usually the person building the temple would claim deity for himself. That's the way it worked in other religions. Oh, not Solomon. And he, and he, he seems to have drawn even more from this witness that there is a true God and he is the creator and the redeemer. This is what Hiram encountered Leslie Allen writes, King Hiram is presented as the model of a Gentile who gives his amen to Israel's testimony. And you see, in this way, he anticipates the end of all history when Christ returns. And what's going to happen? Philippians 2 said that when he returns, every knee will bow. That will be either in judgment or in salvation. Why should it not be in salvation in your case? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved, but every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Well, we've seen here this interesting story of the 
details of this ancient transaction, but it tells us that the purpose of worship is the glory of God with the byproducts of the building up of the people of the people and the witnessing of the gospel to others. Well, as we conclude our study, and the writer of Chronicles presents this record of Solomon's preparations. Again, undoubtedly, this account, this is not bare history. It's written in a way to instruct his own generation. The chronicler is writing as a pastor historian. And what was it really doing? Here's what he's saying to his generation. What, what are you really doing as you're going back to Jerusalem? What, what's going on as we're, we're building a new building on Mount Zion? There's going to be a second temple from the Lord. And here's what he wants them to know. Do you see the cosmic significance of this work, of this holy work? Will you offer your labors wholeheartedly that God would have praise the way that Solomon did? Do you know that not only your own people will be blessed, but the onlooking world will be summoned to join in the glorying of God? Well, like Solomon's workers who were privileged, that's the perspective here, they were privileged to be enrolled among those who would build the house of the Lord. Now it is us. Now we are the ones who are enlisted, as it were, into the great project of giving glory to the God of all grace. Like the priest who would serve in the temple, the means of worship, the means to build up faith, the means to evangelize, they are placed into our hands. Should this not influence the way that we prepare for worship? If only we will prayerfully reflect on the greatness of the love of our God, we'll prepare like Solomon with a primary aim that we would glorify him in return, that our praise would really display who he is through his word, giving him glory. And what a joy to know as well that as we worship, our own souls are lifted up in a strengthened faith. Moreover, as we draw near to God and grow in the boldness of a truly humble devotion, the world will take notice. That's what's happening here. The world takes notice. It will marvel, not ultimately in us, but in the greatness of God who made the heavens and the earth and he saves every sinner who believes in the tender mercy of his grace. Father, thank you for your blessing on our word tonight. Help us to remember that even this event tonight, our worship in the circumstance that we're having tonight, it's all according to your sovereign will. It plays a role. We are carrying on so imperfectly, but in the spirit that Christ sends, we are carrying on that great work of giving you glory and building up your people and showing the world there is a God and he is great and he saves. Oh, Would you put the stamp of your blessing? Would you receive in Christ's name the teaching of your word and and, and our worship tonight? And would you use it that we would grow in our faith, that we would know you better ourselves, we would live more fully for you. And yes, Lord, let the world notice that they would be drawn to you and that you would have glory from them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.